Live from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is a special reunion radio edition of Behind the Markets. Here's your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Thanks for joining us. I am Jeremy Schwartz. I'm in the studio today with Lee Chen Ren, the director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree. Our co-host, Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, is out traveling today and won't be joining us, uh, unfortunately, today. We're excited about this special edition of the show, and my guests today are both uh, Wharton alums. But before we get to them, let's get some business out of the way. Please note, I'm registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own, and not those of Wisdom Tree or its affiliates. Our first guest is here in the studio today with us from Hong Kong, Chad Liu. He's the founder, chairman, and chief investment officer at Prudent Investment Management, which he started in 2008. Chad, welcome to our studio. Welcome back to Wharton. Thank you. Glad to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your time here at Wharton. Oh, I, I also had Professor Jeremy Siegel as my finance professor. So it's you, really you have to pay a lot of points to get that class, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've now worked with him. I actually got here. You were Wharton MBA class of '99. I got here in '99, so uh, we sort of overlapped here, probably for maybe not that any time, but uh, similar times. Um, yeah, it's great to be here. Um, so, what, what? What? How? How would you say Wharton was impactful in in your career? Like, what did you take from your your experience here? Uh, Wharton definitely helped my career a lot. Uh, I came here, uh, got my MBA, then uh, joined uh, uh, Morgan Stanley on the high yield side for investment management. Uh, so, it helped me get into the investment business. Uh, then after working for some other firms, uh, both here and in, and back uh, in Asia, uh, I was able to uh, start my own firm, uh, Prudence, uh, in 2008, uh, focused on uh, Asian credit. It's an interesting part of the world with everything going on in the markets. Um, well, what um, I mean, what? How do you tell us a little bit? about how do you look at Asian credit? Tell us a little bit more about your firm and 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 your approach to looking at that market. Okay, it's a relatively young market. I moved back from U.S. to Asia in two thousand six. Uh, that was probably early stage of the market. And after the two thousand eight financial crisis, uh, market has been on a very fast growth uh, for the last ten years. We've crossed one trillion U.S. dollar mark uh, probably two years ago. Uh, so in terms of size, uh, these days, uh, I think more and more institutional investors feel comfortable to view Asian credit as a standalone uh, asset class. Uh, certainly, that was not the case when I started in the business 10 years ago. Uh, and besides, the uh, when we say Asian credit, typically we refer to the dollar bond market, uh, issued in Asian credit market. But what we do is, uh, in addition to look at the dollar bond market, we also invest uh, in the local currency market. Uh, uh, and uh, in particular for us, uh, we specialize in investing in the China onshore bond market. Uh, in that market, <coughs> until recently, was pretty much closed to global investors. Uh, with the introduction of the China onshore bond market to some of the big global indices, uh, <clears throat> just to give people some sense of how big the market was, the whole China onshore bond market 
was twelve trillion U.S. dollars. Uh, the credit component was about uh, two and a half to three trillion dollars. So <clears throat> the onshore market, just from China alone, is actually much bigger than the Asian dollar bond credit market. Yeah. And so that is in the process of being added to the indexes right now. There's some yeah. of the major players in the U.S. when they when they're talking about indexing to that, they're sort of contemplating adding more Chinese. That's one of the big transitions. In equities, MSCI added a lot of. They're starting to increase the A shares, just sort of similarly opening up access. Um, and sort of China's in the news right today. Mm-hmm. You got all the the sort of trade deals, but let's talk a little bit more about the. The the countries so China is a big one. We'll come back to, but what other countries are in your universe of Asian credit? Uh, Japan is a big one, uh, but Japan we mainly. Uh, but Japanese local bank is big one, uh, but Japanese companies uh, they don't issue too much U.S. dollar bond debt because their local funding costs is much cheaper. It's, it's almost all local, and their yields are zero. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so it's not a lot of yield unless you're hedging. Potentially, you could get some carry if you hedge the end. Yeah. Uh, and the other market we play pretty regularly is in the Sing dollar market, Singapore dollar market. Uh, <clears throat> with that market, they do have uh, uh, a lot of uh, company issuing there, both from Singapore and from other parts of Asia. Uh, because Singapore is also a regional uh, uh, financial center. They have a lot of uh, uh, institutional and retail investment, especially retail. They are looking for yield. So many companies were able to tap the sin dollar market at a relatively reasonable funding rate. And so who, when when you're talking to investors in, for your, in your firm, like who are the types of investors that would allocate to Asian credit? Is it a emerging market investor? Are they located in Asia? Are they located in the U.S., around the world? Who Who are your type, typical clients? Uh, we are not a big firm. Uh, we start, we're based in Hong Kong. Uh, so <clears throat> I think most of our investors are from Asia, local, regional investors. Uh, we do have some, we're starting to have some investors from Europe and some from the U.S., but the majority are based in Asia. And, and mostly institutional type clients? Most institutional investors. And would you say they have dedicated sleeves for Asia or they this is like a sleeve of their emerging market portfolios? How are they viewing Asian credit? Uh, I think for U.S. and European investors, <coughs> uh, this will come out of their either their emerging market uh, allocation or their fixed income allocation. Uh, but for Asian-based investors, uh, well, Asia is uh, Asia is Asia, so <coughs> it probably will not come from emerging market allocation, but rather coming f- out of their fixed income allocation. Hey, um, this is Li Chen. Actually, I, I want to follow up a, a question about the countries. Um, in terms of, in Asia, you know, out of the four dragons, you know, Taiwan has, um, natural advantage, you know, with the connection, cultural connection to China. Is there uh, a potential, you know, more fixed income opening in in from from Taiwan? Uh, like like uh, is is the uh, like a uh, that issuance of Taiwanese companies. Um, a big part of Asian credit, or uh, not really? Uh, Taiwan is a little bit similar to Japan. A <coughs> Taiwan funding rate is very cheap, mm-hmm. uh, the, uh, locally. Uh, B uh, Taiwan as a whole is a net saving country or region. I i.e. local savings uh, outpace their local borrowing demand. So rather than Taiwanese company issuing in the local bond market, uh, in the Asian bond market, more other way around. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. Taiwanese investors have been a big part of the investor base for all strategies, not only uh, Asian credit. So uh, you mean like their corporate sector is a net net savers? Uh, the corporate sector, yeah, a they don't issue, they don't borrow too much. Okay. Uh, B the uh, Taiwanese institutions and retail have been big investors in all kind of strategies, uh, not only just Asia. I know they have been big investors in U.S. Uh, markets as well. Okay. Um, and also to follow up, um, I don't know the fixed income market as well, but recently we have a lot of fixed income strategies, so I'm also learning uh, a lot. Um, in terms of the active selection, is it more selecting, uh, you know, countries, or is it more selecting the bond, or selecting, you know, or or making kind of duration bets? Like in your active strategies, which part, like, are there certain parts that you make your active part bets? Yeah. What what are the the active bets you usually take? Yeah, uh, this is a very good question. Uh, I think different managers, different firms, maybe have different preferences. Uh, we are not a big uh, player in terms of top down. Uh, you know, we have our views on markets, on uh, on macro, on on rates, on duration. <clears throat> but uh, typically, we don't bet too actively on those uh, macro factors. But rather, we're a bottom up player. You know, uh, we have a twenty person investment team. We look at uh, you know hundreds of companies from different industries, and then we are looking constantly looking for mispricing in the marketplace, and build our portfolio bottom up. <coughs> so we own well over 100 names in our mm-hmm. portfolio, uh, but we do use uh, micro hedges to smooth out uh, our volatilities. Okay, so in fixed income, um, like in equities, it's easier to think if you are overweighting a particular country or not. But in fixed income, because all these you know structural problems, like you know Taiwanese may not be issuing a lot of debt. So how do you view them in terms of like, your country country allocation? Do you do you like allocate a certain amount of money to a particular country, or like how do you control that risk? Okay, uh, we're not very uh, focused on you know country by country. Uh, we do have a if for people following the Asian credit market. There are some uh, indices people use very actively. For example, uh, your Jackie Index is probably the JP Morgan Asian Credit Index is probably the most uh, widely quoted indices. Uh, you can look at it from country perspective. You can look at it from industry. You can look at it from uh, credit rating. You know, and, uh, we all use uh, Moody's, SP, and Fitch in in, in the region. Uh, or you can use look at it from each type. Uh, you know. Uh, servant, quasi servant, financials, you know, uh, corporates, uh, and for us, uh, China is a big component. Of what do we do uh, for the index? If you look at uh, by country, China accounts for sixty percent of the Asian dollar bond market. Anyway, yeah, I mean that's that's sort of one of the questions as. As MSCI thinks about adding China to the equities. They worry about well, is is the emerging markets index going to become forty percent China? And so it seems like you, if you're benchmarked to the J.P. Morgan Credit Index, you could have sixty percent in China, which may be reasonable and just n- neutral. Um, but let me uh, let just reintroduce your your firm. We're talking with Chad Liu, who's working, who's CEO, founder of Prudence Investment Management, uh, Asian credit shop. And we're talking about the, cre- the the China bond opportunities. When, when you think about 
for the and you're focusing on U.S. dollar bonds. So there's no real currency risk for like a U.S. dollar investor going to an Asian U.S. dollar bond. There's no real currency risk there. You got to the companies have to or the sovereigns will have to be able to pay these dollar liabilities. So there's a lot of people who worry strong dollar hurts a lot of these these dollar denominated bonds. But how would you frame the yield opportunity in Asian credit today compared to say U.S. for a similar call? You know, a, a U.S. aggregate bond index may have a five to six year duration. Or maybe a little bit longer, but like, how would you say the Asian credit tilt? You know, what are the the average yields they could get across Asia compared to say the U.S.? Generically, uh, Asian credit offers higher yield than comparable rated uh, U.S. Uh, counterparts. Uh, now, uh, risk premium. There's a, a risk premium. Yeah, of course, there's a, a meaningful uh, Asian uh, risk premium, uh, but. But in certain areas of the market, we think things get a lot more interesting. Uh, a, the Asian credit typically is much shorter in duration, in maturity, than U.S. credit. A typical, for example, a typical high yield bond in the U.S. is ten year bond. Uh, in Asia, it's three to five year. So it's one third to half of the duration of the U.S. bond. And then. <coughs> The in terms of yield or spread, uh, IG investment grade uh, relative to US, there is some pickup, but not very significant. Uh, but in terms of high yield, the pickup is very significant. Uh, the <coughs> relatively speaking, U, uh, Asian high yield is relatively early stage, and the investor type is very diverse. You have investors from you know, major U.S. investors, you know, European investors. You also have local uh, Asian-based investors. Japanese investors looking for yield, I assume. Uh, yes, uh, but we haven't seen <coughs> too much Japanese, uh, Japan-based managers directly investing. Right. They're more allocating to managers. Right. Uh, and then there's a big, <coughs> I think, <coughs> Asian feature. It's a very heavy uh High net worth individuals investing in bond market directly. Yeah. Uh, private banking clients has been a major force in the bond market, especially in the high yield market. So, so the key characteristics of the Asian high yield: their shorter duration, one third, call it three years versus ten years. What would you say is the yield spread over the U.S. high yield? What's the typical <coughs> yield spread? Uh, it's a wide range. Okay. It's a wide range. Uh, I would say you can easily see a, a double B bond maybe trading at uh, 7%, 8%, uh, single B trading around 10%, just as a ballpark. But <clears throat> there are also cases where uh, the companies, we think it's not in financial trouble, uh, but uh, quite often market constantly worry about refinancing risk. Uh, in that case, uh, you could see cases where two companies in the same industry, very similar, at almost identical profile. One company, they just did financing, let's say, one year ago. They have no major maturities in the next three to four years. So their debt might be treated at 10%. Uh, identical company, they did their financing four years ago, and their debt is coming up one year from now they could be trading at 80 cents on a dollar and the yield would be you know you think about it 10 percent coupon plus 20 points to par that's over 30 percent mm-hmm. so 
But in terms of business, in terms of leverage ratio, cash flow, same business. same business, the only difference has been maturity profile. So I think there is a big risk component in Asia in our market is the refinancing risk. And, and what type of companies are those? Are they the Chinese companies that people are worried about the refinancing on, or is there are they from a certain certain sector, certain country? Uh, not only from China. China certainly is a big part of the market. Sixty percent of the overall. Yeah, uh, but also the other some of the uh, Indonesian companies, uh, some of the credit as well, <clears throat> because I think unlike in the U.S. market, where a healthy business, uh, reasonable balance sheet. Uh, Generally speaking, market believe they can get a refinancing. Uh, the difference being whether you refinance at a good rate or a little bit bad rate. But in Asian market, I think we are not there yet. Mm. Uh, market has to constantly reprice the uh, refinancing probability. So, so when these companies issue U.S. dollar bonds, how much of them are collecting U.S. dollar revenue, and and how much true like? narrative is there around the currency risk and, and there's there's a lot of the oil companies who you know end up sort of a Russian oil company or a Brazilian oil company issuing dollars and you say well their oil, their revenue is priced in dollars in some ways their currencies tend to fall when the dollar is going up and so there's some of this natural hedge but I'm curious how do you have a view on how much the dollar risk is for these companies I think you're right. For a lot of the natural resource business, uh, their business either collects dollar revenue outright or their pricing is linked to dollar pricing. So for them, there's a natural hedge. Then <coughs> traditionally, for uh, <coughs> most of the borrowers in the past, most of the revenues is local currency-based. But what we have been... Uh, witnessing, especially in the last uh, few years, is uh, for example, borrowers from China. More and more Chinese companies over the last five or so years have been uh, adding uh, assets or revenue base outside China. So <clears throat> uh, they are starting to have some component of uh, dollar revenue. May not be 100% US dollar. Yeah. Uh, but at least they have some revenue base outside their home currency. Um, and 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 how much of these these headlines that we see today? You know, the, I mean, to, it, the day we're talking today, there's a lot of worries about China, and so we thought we were going to get to a trade deal, but now there's a lot less optimism there. Sort of, it's it's declined quickly in a week. Um, how much does do, you, do the companies that issue dollar bonds that you're looking at tend to be more exposed to global trade? Does it change any? Are you going back to your investment committee and saying we have a lot to reevaluate, or you think it's sort of par for the course? We don't have a crystal ball into those high level. I expected more, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, from our conversations with the borrowers, with uh, most of our actually listed companies, listing Hong Kong, some listing Asia, some listing the U.S. Uh, it feels like I think people generally feel uh, hopefully you know at some point uh, both sides can come to a, a compromise uh, and for from a business perspective you cannot manage your business based on you know financial market volatility uh, a, <clears throat> I think the, at least currency wise still relatively stable uh, uh, it's within a reasonable range in the last three to four years. Uh, and we haven't seen you know f- FX market pricing very high uh, risk premium uh, in terms of uh, Chinese RMB to weaken, and also it's still very cheap 
to uh, hedge uh, Chinese RMB risk uh, back into dollar. So if you <coughs> worry about uh, currency risk, you want to hedge into dollar, uh, you can do it at a very reasonable rate. Like um, what? What is that reasonable rate today? I think within one percent. Okay. A year. Do, do you do you do hedge part of those currency risk in your portfolio? Uh, for our portfolios, our uh, strategies that is uh, benchmarking U.S. dollars. Whenever we invest outside U.S. dollar uh, securities, we hedge back. Okay, so what's like generally to the you know particular benchmark? What's the tracking area? Do you usually run the active portfolio? Uh, you know, for hedge funds, we don't have a, uh, a benchmark. It's more absolute return. But okay. I think most people would refer to is the Jackie Jackie Index. Uh huh. Mm. And like how 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 much deviation do you usually uh, get away from the Jackie Index? Uh, we like as much higher as possible. As possible. <laughs> <laughs> so you believe in high checking error delivers high higher, you know. Uh, We're not a mutual fund index fund. Okay. Uh, let, me, let me just reintroduce our guests. We're talking with Chad Liu, founder and chairman of Prudence Investment Management. Uh, and you know, it's, it's it is interesting when you think about the opportunity in this space. And most people would say, and a lot of the indexes are the more debt you issue, the more weight you get in the index. And as you're an active credit manager, I assure you would say, I don't care if they issue more debt. I actually would rather them issue less debt in a way. If I'm having two bonds with the same yield, I'd rather the less levered firm not yeah. give more weight. So in, in a way, indexing has been viewed as nonsensical in a way for a traditional bond index. And that's where active management adds more value. But you think there could be factors that could be applied to fixed income? Is that something you, you see at all being talked about in Asia, factors for fixed income? <clears throat> it's probably not a very uh, very common topic yet. Uh, you think about it. I moved from U.S. to Hong Kong in 2006. Back in 2006, when we have a new investment grade or high yield bond, uh, new issue roadshow. If you pick a fancy hotel in Hong Kong, there will be about four tables. That's the main lunch roadshow. And table one, two on the top, closer to the, would be two table of investors, so less than 20 investors. And table three, table four would be uh, professionals, you know, bankers. <laughs> So that tells you how big was the market back then. <laughs> <laughs> and what's the, what's the market like today? I think now, if you really uh, do it, uh, a typical ratio, you can easily see 10 or 15 tables, and it's all investors. Uh, so it's so there's a much bigger interest. Uh, uh, as you mentioned, a lot of high net worth clients <coughs> in Asia are interested to you know invest in directly. <coughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, they won't get a seat on a, a ratio. Uh, okay. Maybe the bank will send it, you know, JP Morgan will send a dedicate there, but it cannot have, you know, oil investors there. But at least I think the investor base has uh, been growing uh, okay. significantly over the last 10 years. Uh, but in terms of, uh, I think, market efficiency, we're still behind the U.S. market. Okay. Uh, it's A, it's still a relatively young market. B, uh the U.S. market is predominantly, it's almost all institutional market, uh, versus in Asia, I think the dynamics is very different. You have, you have different institutions. You have uh, uh, retail, uh, 
uh, retail, I mean, mostly high net worth. But if you look at, for example, China onshore bond market, you do have retail retail. Mm-hmm. Uh, the China is probably one of the very few places in the world that bought corporate bond actually trade at a very retail size. In in Shenzhen Stock Exchange, the minimum lot size to trade corporate bond in terms of denomination is 100 RMB. Wow. So 13 US dollars. <laughs> so for $13, you can pound on a corporate bond even at a par. So for those three hundred fifty cents, it costs you seven dollars. That's the price of a Finney cheese steak. Mm-hmm. Maybe not even. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, and I think that's uh, like some of the characteristics in in Asia. Like a, a lot of retail investors, you know, trade bonds or derivatives as if it's a stock. You know, yes, which yeah. is yeah very. D- um, I do want to ask. So we talk about the factors, right? I think. Um, the general question is: You probably have deployed some kind of fact ideas in your stock selection, like you know, thinking about um, whether when you, you when you're comparing companies, it, you know, whether you considered it cheap, you know, versus the other. It's just not yet systematic in, in your in your stock, like a bond selection. Like, what are the characteristics you factor in in your like a bond selection? Okay. Uh, <coughs> In terms of our fundamental uh, and, and a tactical <coughs> research or decision, it's I think it's uh, this is pretty universal uh, principles. Whether you look at the Asian or U.S., uh, for example, we spend a lot of research understanding the industry, understanding the company, the borrower, and the financial, the, the business risk, financial risk, and the management, uh, controlling shareholder. I think one factor. <laughs> Probably it's it's beyond what you would do for the typical whole nine yards in the U.S. credit. It's uh, you know when you look at U.S. credit, uh, most of the time from a credit research perspective, it's focused on the ability to pay. Now credit is about credit rate is about willingness to pay and ability to pay. But in the U.S., ninety nine point nine percent of the research is spent on ability to pay. And how do you judge willingness? This is our very subjective. I think this is our and science yeah. in Asia. So I think this is where when we go to emerging market like Asia, we have developed over the last, you know, eleven years a lot of expertise in assess and price willingness to pay. And I think a lot of times market does assign a high risk premium. If you uh, if you look at risk premium, a lot of time it cannot purely be explained by the financial risk. Uh, sometimes you company, you know, one time that EBITDA, uh, then why is trading at you know twenty percent yield? Right. So, the, so the, for the listeners, one times debt to EBITDA, they've got earnings that cover all their debt, and they can make it back next year. And uh, yeah, we we've got situations. A company has been committed to sell assets. It's in the process of closing, and it's regulated assets. And once they sell the assets, it becomes that free. And then still trading at 20 times a yield. And then you ask about this is public information that's been publicly disclosed. And people, are, why are doing this? Because then people are scratching, how do I know they will pay off my debt if they get the cash? What are they going to do with it? They're what I do with the cash? I'm going to take the cash and run. That's yeah. So, but that's interesting. But why? Like, why in Asia? Is there like some historical reasons that, you know, the companies do not, like, uh, their willingness to pay is much more fudgeable? Uh, 
I think there are certain cases in the past uh, that have uh, have left the market with some concerns mm-hmm. on this. Uh, I can give a comparable uh, example. Uh, you mentioned uh, about uh, currency risk. Uh, I think most of the uh, investors these days don't really worry too much about currency weakening significantly to a point that will make the issuers unable to repay their dollar bond. Not yet. Uh, and and there, there's some point in the past there's a worry, but not at this time. Right when you were here at Wharton, the 98 yeah, yeah, financial that, crisis. Yeah, that, that was the time people worried about. But f- quite often, there was a worry. Uh, a big example, oh, uh, Chinese company, you know, oil revenues from China, you borrow U.S. dollar bond. Even if you have the money, cash, you prepared, but it's the RMB. How can you move RMB from China, you know, to outside China to pay off the dollar bond? That, from time to time, mm-hmm. has been a concern for the market. It's not about exchange rate volatility, but about exchanging control. Or can you move money out, capital out, to pay off your debt? So a lot of it is like kind of a structural. There's a, some structural barrier, which there's a risk premium that's put on, on those kind of concerns. I, I would use the word structure concern. Okay. Not necessarily barrier. Okay, structural yeah. concerns, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's interesting because I I think uh, you know in in the U.S. certainly the willingness to pay probably because you know the legal enforcement is much more straightforward, right? The 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 cost of you know you taking the company's assets and pay pay the bond owners is is probably easier in the U.S. versus in Asia. Because you you would think that you know if the company don't pay, the bond owners got the first uh, you know yeah. dip, yeah. It's, it may not be as straightforward in Asia as in the U.S. Mm-hmm. That is why there's a premium, because yes. it's not as straightforward. Yeah. Yeah. So, Chad, it's been a very interesting conversation. Um, any other final points you thought as people look at the Asian bond market, the China bond market in particular? Any closing thoughts about prudence that you want to you relate? Uh, I think you know, I spent uh, seven to eight years investing in the U.S. market, high yield, then I went back to Asia. Uh, I think at the end of the day, if you look at the bottom of you know, credit, of investing credit, uh, to me, it's, it's the same. It's a get the price and the risk right. Uh, so at the end of the day, sometimes people spend, especially smart people, especially professional investors or professional capital allocators, because they've gone to work and they've got a business school and they got too smart, they get boiled down to the technicalities, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, willingness to pay, capital structure, legal rights, uh, you know, uh, subordination, uh, you know, technical features. But at the end of the day, if you have long enough uh, data, what you care about is your return. Mm-hmm. On a 10-year, 15, 20-year basis, you know, what's my credit loss? What's my actual return? Because at the end of the day, not day, yes, at the end of every day, whether you buy a corporate bond from Philadelphia, you get $100 back. Or you buy a corporate bond from Mongolia, you get a $100 back. This is the same $100 you should buy U.S. government treasury. So the yield matters. The yield yeah. matters. Yes, the yield matters. Yes. The dollar yield matters. matters. Right. Right. Yeah. It's like the process. Common sense right? matters. But sometimes yeah. people got too boy that, oh, that's in, you know, somewhere I've never been to. But at the end of the day, it pays you back in 
dollars. Yeah. Uh, this is what I pay for U.S. for working tuition as well. And uh, <laughs> it's why you need somebody who has prudence in their investment management policy. Chad yeah. Liu, yeah. thank you so much for joining us here in Wharton Studio. Thanks. Welcome back to Wharton. Thank you. My pleasure. You've been yeah. listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 132. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. We'll be back after a short break. You're listening to a reunion radio edition of Behind the Markets, live from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania during Alumni Weekend. Here again is Jeremy Schwartz. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, in the studio today with Lee Chen Ren, the director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree. Our next guest is one of her friends, Dolly Young, the William Cloud Rivas Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago, where Lee Chen worked with Professor Yang. Um, professor, welcome to our program today. Oh, it's my pleasure. And, He's my uh, teacher. I, uh, I hear Li Chen studied under you, and I also have heard that you were one of the early sort of Chinese who came after some of the reforms to come to the U.S. and study. So it's interesting to be, be talking with you today. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. It's uh, great to be on. So tell us, do you have anything on Li Chen, you know, from background at Chicago? <laughs> what, tell us about what kind of student she was. Well, I, I can assure you that uh, she, uh, she was one of the best. And, of course, uh, she's done well, um, both at Vanguard and, of course, now at uh, the new outfit. He's a good professor. The secrets are safe there. So <laughs> we're crashing a water reunion party from University of Chicago and Princeton. Very yeah. good. So, so tell us a little bit about what you focused on in your research efforts at Chicago. What are some of your main topics? I, I see you've written a few different books. Um, one, Remaking the Chinese Leviathan, Market Transition and the Politics of Governance in China. Very topical with all the China news today. But tell us a little bit about your research interests and what, and what you're studying. Well, I, I look at a variety of issues concerning uh, the Chinese development. In fact, uh, I just uh, co-authored a little book on child and youth well-being in China, which just came out. And of course, it chronicles, it really uh, uses national longitudinal survey data to uh, describe how the conditions for Chinese children and youth have changed in recent years in particular, and how they have improved, in, uh, uh, especially I also looked at uh, very extensively at various aspects of the Chinese regulatory state, uh, from the environment to other issues, food, drug regulation, and so on. But in that sense, actually, I continue to look at the remaking of the Chinese Leviathan, which, of course, I have been very concerned with. And broadly speaking about China's political economy, and of course, given that China is no longer a marginal parochial power as it used to be 20 years ago, uh, of course, what one finds about China also is relevant for our understanding of global trends and including today's current events, actually. Yeah, yeah. When you, so when you say remaking the Chinese Leviathan, what does that actually mean to you? Well, uh, what I saw in particular was the uh, changes in how the Chinese government uh, was reorganized and how the relations between the state and the economy and also society were being restructured. In fact, I made a lot of emphasis on how China was emphasizing order as it continues to do today, but at the same time has become much more uh, proactive and also progressive in certain ways on the social front in terms of uh, social justice, especially income inequality and so on. But at the same time, it's strengthening the capacity of the Chinese state to intervene in certain areas. We were giving up on areas that used to be uh, part of the planned economy 
but at the same time has become actually more significant in other areas, for example, the issues of food and safety uh, regulations and so on, and of course more recently uh, in the environmental sphere. So in that sense, what I emphasized was how actually China was developing into an entity that's actually going to be a force to be reckoned with. Uh, one of the uh, interesting aspects that I studied, uh, that was a fairly old book now, actually, was how China was doing well in restructuring the banking system, which was a shambles, uh, let's say, around 2000 and 2000, uh, the early 2000s. And in fact, it was preparing China well for the next round. And of course, when the next round came into the global crisis in 2008, China was ready uh, to uh, expand the fiscal actually spending side, but also in getting the banks to land and to uh, really sort of uh, stimulate the economy. And of course, in many ways, I'm uh, both happy that it worked out in terms of my thesis, but of course, it also created some of the issues we have to confront today. Uh, Professor, actually, if you don't mind, can you tell us a little bit in terms of restructuring the banking system, like how, you know, the role of the state, how, you know, the role of the private sector and the role of, you know, local governments? Yeah, I think uh, in terms of the formal banking system, the uh, the Chinese banking system, we uh, it's hard to remember now, uh, was essentially insolvent by around the year 2000. In fact, part of it was actually because Many of the state-owned enterprises went bankrupt or simply weren't uh, paying back the loans that they were getting from the banking system. And in the process, the Chinese government recapitalized the banking system entirely and, of course, made it continue to be subject to state control today, but at the same time began to liberalize the financial sector over time by increasing the securities markets, but also allowing various other forms of financial liberalization. So in the process, of course, also created the conditions for greater uh, uh, room for uh, private companies to emerge. And also uh, later on, of course, as China was joining the WTO in 2001, uh, many foreign investors went into China and thrived at that point as Chinese private investments actually began to produce massively, of course, uh, uh, as we found out uh, later on, uh, for uh, the export markets, especially the United States. So all of those were intertwined. So they went into a, they were, you know, kind of a vicious cycle in the 1990s as the uh, state sector went bust and the banking system was in uh, um, a problematic spot. But then with the recapitalization, with the changing global system as China joined the WTO, with the liberalization of the domestic economy and also uh, a more foreign investment as well. So China went into this massive virtual cycle. Everything just worked well for the economy in terms of exports, growing incomes, more spending, more consumption. And of course, the government was doing well as well. And of course, in the meantime, these banks that went bust, uh, let's say around 2003 or so, now are some of the world's largest and uh, in terms of assets, in terms of, uh, uh, in fact, uh, uh, capitalization as well today. But of course, the Chinese government has been very, very cautious about financial risk, and it has been a major preoccupation over the last few days, a uh, few years, in fact. Uh, there was actually a lot of encouragement of uh, liberalization, but especially entrepreneurship, but a lot of it was reflected in the P2P sector, 
Last year, however, the Chinese government cracked down on that sector, and that created a lot of headaches for people who invested in that area as well. So it's a continuing uh, process of both liberalization from time to time, but also efforts at maintaining control by the regulators, by the party state as well. Um, for our listeners, just want to say that P2P is commonly referred in China, kind of part of the shadow banking. Um, it was originally encouraged because, you know, Chinese, uh, um, it's very hard for smaller uh, firms uh, to get loans. But last year, there was somewhat crackdown on this because there were a lot of P2P platforms went uh, kind of bust. But recently, there has been some loosening up of these private lending channels as well. Um, so, Professor, um, you were the founding faculty director of the University of Chicago Center in Beijing, and it's a university-wide uh, initiative to promote collaboration and exchange between University of Chicago scholars and students and their Chinese counterparts. So you were in Beijing very frequently. Um, can you tell us a little bit of your experience and your observations uh, and how that would inform you know, our current view on, on the China and U.S. You know, relationship? Well, certainly, uh, that's actually that entity uh, was very helpful in creating greater opportunities for our students, in particular from the University of Chicago, uh, to better understand China and also uh, to uh, have experiences as interns and, of course, uh, to study the language and in many other areas as well. And that was actually and continues to be something that we emphasize in creating those opportunities. But what I, uh, in my greater interactions in the process, I also get to know not only you Chicago alums, but many others. And I experienced uh, in many ways, actually, the dynamics and especially in terms of entrepreneurship as a newer generation uh, of Chinese uh, are growing up. In fact, the entrepreneurs who thrive, who succeeded, in the 1990s, are increasingly retiring today, and they are transferring power and assets to the younger generation. What is also interesting about China is actually what we have is a very unique situation whereby there was a dramatic decline in fertility with the family planning system. So as a result, you have the unique situation of two elder generations, the parents' generation and the grandparents' generation, placing a lot of uh, uh, their hopes on the younger generation, the only children in the cities primarily, and of course uh, giving the investments, but also, uh, in fact, enabling those youngsters to experiment, to study hard, of course, on the one hand, but also to experiment a, a bit more than before. So as a result, what we see in China is actually uh, not only the behemoths that we tend to uh, think about in terms of the biggest corporations, both in the public and private sector, but also a lot of emphasis on entrepreneurship, on creating companies. The P2P sector that we just discussed is one area. But at the same time, what we find, uh, what I saw, however, is also a lot of entrepreneurs pursuing private equity investments in newer areas as well. All, uh, very often, actually, in cutthroat competition. And of course, when uh, uh, some of those companies do succeed, and some of them don't, because uh, that's the nature of such entrepreneurship. They also get reflected in listings on the, for example, in the U.S. and so on. Uh, in fact, uh, the latest, of course, is this company today just uh, trading called Lurking, which is actually 
uh, most people would never have imagined that a Chinese company would compete against Starbucks and listing right uh, in New York, actually, so sort of uh, at this company that looking. So in that sense, actually, what I see and what I'm especially uh, interested in is actually the cultures about youth. What do they do? How are they uh, thinking? And what does that mean for China's development, for China's change down the road, but also actually for the rest of the world in many ways, and which is one of the reasons that I've been paying so much attention to the study of children and youth, uh, in fact, both in the book, but also uh, in leading student interns, in research on Chinese online communities, and so on. Let me just reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Dolly Young, the a professor of political science at the University of Chicago and uh, sort of expert on some of the, the, the local China dynamics. Uh, and, and it really is a very timely discussion. You mentioned the company listing today that actually having a pretty good reaction today in the markets while a lot of the other China-focused companies are are actually really under pressure with, with this sort of ramping up of the you know, maybe we aren't going to come to a China deal. And that's sort of the, the real, it, it sort of shifted the sentiment and really a bit in one week. Any view from you on how this whole China situation is going to play out? And I know Li Chen has some views on, on the topic too, but interested to get, get your views on the, the current dynamics. Well, certainly it's been a, a truly a, a saga of a kind of our age in terms of how uh, the U.S., the world's largest economy, is contesting the second, uh, the second largest economy in the world, the upstart in many ways, but also a country that cannot be easily brought down anymore uh, in a way. And the, so this is actually where we are. It's both actually a commercial uh, uh, actually negotiation, but it's also fundamentally political. And there is a lot of psychological element involved in this, of course, the, uh, and also cultural differences uh, that are playing out. Of course, at this moment, we are looking at a situation of a brinkmanship with the Trump administration uh, really so sort of uh, applying maximum pressure, trying to exert pressure on the Chinese side uh, to come to the table to try to reach a deal. But of course, the Chinese leadership, uh, I, I think actually President Trump actually did make a reference to this. The Chinese leadership was playing for time. They were actually uh, willing to actually agree to a significant amount of, of uh, actually items with the U.S. side because many of those items, the demands on the, from the American side are also considered to be important for China's continuing reforms. But at the same time, China doesn't want to be seen as simply caving in to American demands. So at this point, the issue is both in terms of to what extent actually there should be concessions, but more importantly also about mutual respect or certainly China wants to be seen as standing up. So this is a very remarkable moment in terms of reminds me of what happened, for example, in the late 1990s as China was negotiating to join the WTO at that point. Of course, China was much weaker. But even then, of course, it took such a long time from the 1980s all the way through 2001 when China finally uh, joined the WTO. Uh, And even then, it was actually such a close, close call. So in that sense, actually, the kind of massive, very public uh, uh, sort of uh, wrestling between the two leaders uh, in many ways actually could go either way uh, uh, to some extent, actually, because the Chinese leaders are playing for 
essentially uh, telling the people that we are ready for greater pain and are doing a lot of things to try to stand up to it. Uh, so, so, and that actually, on the one hand, may be a ploy in terms of trying to, uh, um, in terms of the negotiations. The danger, however, is those stands, those very public stands, could also get stuck because they create their own dynamics in terms of the, uh, how the domestic politics play in. So I think actually what we have in international relations, we tend to emphasize uh, two-level games. Uh, the Chinese leadership has been actually restraining uh, public participation until the last few days, really. And now they are mobilizing public opinion, even while emphasizing the virtues of cooperation with the United States. And when that happens, actually, there is the danger that it becomes harder for the Chinese leadership to uh, make concessions down the road. And of course, it's designed to be shown to the American side that, look, uh, we Chinese leaders also need to pay attention to our domestic sentiments. But at the same time, however, it also means that the negotiation could really get stuck, uh, in fact. Actually, um, you mentioned the WTO. I I remember that because that was when I was going to college and first time kind of, uh, you know, going from a small town to Beijing and actually thinking about the politics. And I remember at that time at college, you know, the topic was, you know, will we ever join WTO? You know, will U.S. prevent us from joining WTO? But now you look back, actually, at that time, China to join WTO made you know, quite some concessions, even made some changes to the Chinese law to join the WTO, which was never highlighted because it will be considered so, you know, losing face that you have to change your law to to join an international organization. And the dynamic is somewhat in play right now as well that, you know, U.S. is in the hawkish side of the U.S. is demanding China to make some really dramatic changes Um but thank you, Professor, for 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 mentioning this. Um, you, uh, you are also a member of the Committee of One Hundred, which is a, a organization that promotes uh, in the U.S. that promotes you know thinkings and actions on national uh, on U.S.-China relationships. Could you uh, you know explain a little bit uh, on you know those front? Well, uh, in fact, the Committee of 100 uh, was founded uh, in uh, 1989. In fact, one of the founders uh, was uh, uh, Mr. I.M. Pei, the famous uh, architect who just passed away this week. So the organization uh, really mourns the pass- passage of uh, uh, I.M. Pei, but also celebrate the achievements that um, he made um, Truly, as one of the world's leading architects of his generation of the 20th century, truly, uh, uh, in fact. So the C100 is designed to promote um, Chinese Americans in terms of participation in the U.S. as American citizens. Uh, and that's a very important goal for the organization. But at the same time, especially given its funding in the 19, late 1980s, it also was designed to promote uh, the U.S.-China relationship because of the danger of uh, especially how this relationship has become so much more important. But fundamentally, however, this is an organization uh, that's designed especially uh, uh, for American Chinese Americans to serve uh, as citizens to participate in, especially in many issues of civic engagement, uh, including civil rights and so on. 
So, Professor Yang, where, you know, as, as people want to get involved in following your work, where else can they follow your 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 uh, your writings and uh, stay in touch with all of your views? Well, they can find uh, quite a number of my articles and also listings of my books uh, at uh, daliyang, D-A-L-I-Y-A-N-G dot org. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, of course, uh, there are all those search engines that one can go to, uh, <laughs> finding out about information. Uh, actually, very good. I appreciate you taking the time to join us uh, on our program today. Oh, it's uh, my pleasure. Um, Lee Chen, it was, a, it was a very interesting conversation. China's been in the news. It was something we're going to have to keep coming back with. And your sort of quick thoughts is that it's going to just take, this is something we're dealing with and uh, not and, and, and not to expect a, a quick resolution here. That's exactly. I think on this radio, I've talked a lot of times that, you know, this China and U.S. is really uh, going to be very long term. You know, maybe there will be some deal, but the deal will be worked out in so many levels. But on the other hand, and the in in the bottom, you know, the com- communication and the interaction still goes on. You know, businesses still working together. Organizations like you know Committee of One Hundred or University of Chicago Center in Beijing, they are still you know ongoing in the life. Um, uh, Pro- uh, Professor Dali mentioned the I.M. Pei, who's this great American uh, architect who just passed away. And he's mourned uh, in the U.S. and in China. So people are going to tune out the larger picture and then still focus on what needs to be done in the lower level. Always great getting your perspective. It's been uh, very interesting. Uh, Thanks to our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Daniel Bruno. It's been a special Wharton Reunion weekend radio special. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.